Hello, I'm Razia Iqbal. Welcome to NewsHour from the BBC World Service. It comes to you live from our studios in central London. Another intercontinental ballistic missile test from North Korea. What options are there now to stop the country from becoming a full nuclear power? That is our top story today. Also coming up in the programme, our reporter in Italy finds a somewhat unusual tourist stop shop. Slightly odd feeling to be drinking Mussolini labelled red wine in a shop. Uh, standing in front of a bunch of Mussolini lighters and also a collection of uh, Hitler lighters as well. Do stay with us for that report and lots more coming up this hour. We begin, though, with news from North Korea, which triggers once again a general sense of anxiety of the what now variety. Pyongyang says its latest ballistic missile test demonstrates that it now has the capability to strike anywhere in the United States. While we are now familiar with North Korea's propensity to boast and exaggerate, this is the first salient fact. The missile travelled a 1,000 kilometres before falling into the Sea of Japan. However, experts say that the height it achieved strongly indicates that a flatter trajectory could bring Washington within range of an attack. This was the announcement of the launch made on the state broadcaster by the now familiar Familiar, Mrs. Ri Chun-hee, who we know is only brought out for big announcements. Mrs. Ri said North Korea had tested a new intercontinental ballistic missile tipped with a heavy warhead that could hit the whole of the United States mainland. In response, China, North Korea's closest ally, said it was gravely concerned. China has urged all sides to show caution. Uh, Zheng Chuang is a spokesman for the Chinese Foreign Ministry. China expresses grave concern and opposition to the relevant launching activities and strongly urges the North Koreans to observe the relevant resolutions of the UN Security Council. They must stop actions that heighten tensions on the Korean peninsula. At the same time, we also hope relevant parties will act cautiously to work together for the peace and stability of the region. That's the view from China. Russia called it a provocative action and US President Donald Trump had this to say. I will only tell you that we will take care of it. We have General Mattis in the room with us and uh, we've had a long discussion on it. It is a situation that we will handle. Well, let's take a look in a little more detail at the capabilities of this latest North Korean missile. A short time ago, I spoke to our diplomatic correspondent, Paul Adams, who is in the South Korean capital, Seoul. Well, I think the key things about this latest test were that it flew for longer and it went higher than any of its predecessors. And in particular, it's the altitude that has caused interest among missile watchers, if I can call them that, because this went four and a half thousand kilometers up into space. And the experts say that at a flatter trajectory, that implies that North Korea does indeed have the capacity now to launch a intercontinental ballistic missile that could hit pretty much anywhere in the continental United States. The key thing to note here, of course, is that this was a missile without a warhead. A nuclear warhead is heavier, almost certainly, than whatever it had on the end of it. And the whole business of exiting and re-entering the Earth's atmosphere also presents challenges which the North Korean regime is not thought yet to have mastered. So it is a step forward. But it isn't yet a moment of key crisis in terms of 
North Korea's ability to inflict actual damage on the United States. So, so the weight issue in terms of the load on board would clearly make a difference. What do we know, if anything, about the load on board this particular missile? Was it carrying a dummy warhead? We believe so. Uh, it was described uh, somewhat comically uh, in the North Korean statement as a super large heavy warhead, whatever that means. But there's no suggestion that this was in any way nuclear. The extent to which they can mimic the heaviness of a nuclear warhead, we simply don't know. We don't have that level of insight into what the North Koreans are doing. Um, but we do know that one of the key challenges facing them is particularly what happens when a missile fired out into space re-enters the Earth's atmosphere. What happens to the warhead during that incredibly traumatic moment of re-entry into the Earth's atmosphere. Most experts believe that North Korea is two to three years away from developing that particular capability. A South Korean minister the other day suggested that at the pace they were going, perhaps they might master it within one year. Uh, but it's not thought that they're quite there yet. So whatever we do know about this particular test does seem to suggest that progress is being made. Is there any sense at all from the intelligence community about how North Korea has moved so quickly in, in their development of this uh, missile programme? Uh, there's no very clear indication. I mean, everything about this programme and indeed this regime is opaque and difficult to read. A South Korean minister did the other day say that the North Koreans are very good at suddenly surging forward at a time when you don't expect it. Uh, and he also said, without going into details, and I don't know if he was just being coy or didn't have the details, that he felt that North Korea must be getting help from somewhere else. We don't know exactly what he meant by that. Uh, you know, there are, if you like, the usual suspects, uh, whether or not Iran has offered its expertise in any way. But clearly, along the line, over the years, North Korea has drawn on the expertise of other countries and other individuals. And it may well be that it is still able to do that even now at a time of great isolation. We're seeing already that China is expressing its concern. And, and there certainly has been documentation of the North Koreans getting some of their expertise at Chinese universities. It's a really interesting balancing act that the Chinese have to play. China's role in this is subtle, not always easy to read either. All eyes about a week ago were on a Chinese official who went to Pyongyang ostensibly to brief the Korean authorities on the outcome of the latest Congress in Beijing. But also it was hoped to meet Kim Jong-un and discuss the nuclear issue. There is no evidence that that meeting took place or that discussion occurred. And so I think a lot of people were rather disappointed that China, which you know a lot of people do look to as possibly being able to provide a way out of this crisis, it has not yet been able to do that. At the moment, we have a situation in which we have this technical lurch forward by the North Korean regime without any kind of background diplomatic dialogue going on at all that we're aware of. And that clearly is a very dangerous situation to be in, because at the very least, you want to know what North Korea's intentions are. You don't want to have to simply try and parse the rhetoric in a statement released on North Korean TV. You actually want to be able to sit face to face with them, ask them what they want and ask them what they're about and try and get some clearer answers. And at the moment, that avenue, that channel does not seem to exist. 
That was our correspondent, uh, Paul Adams, speaking to me a short while ago from Seoul. Let's speak now to Joel Witt, who was a senior advisor on Korea in the administration of President Bill Clinton during the 90s. He's now senior fellow at the US Korea Institute at uh, Johns Hopkins University in the US. Welcome to NewsHour. Uh, when you when you hear our correspondent talking about China uh, being a, a way out of this, so we've also heard what President Trump said today. Uh, what what is it that you think the North Koreans are up to in ratcheting up the, 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 the confrontation? Well, you know, I, I, I sort of hesitate to, to give you a quick response because they're not ratcheting up the, the confrontation. This has been going on for a couple of years now and certainly months since the beginning of the Trump administration. And every time they conduct a test, everyone gets really excited about it. And the fact is, this has been a steady, forward-moving effort by the North Koreans to develop long-range ballistic missiles and certainly more and more powerful nuclear weapons. So it shouldn't take anyone by surprise. So if, if it shouldn't take us by surprise, how should the United States... How should China, how should the global community respond to it? Well, that's, of course, you know, that's the the big question for everyone. And the fact is also that the North Koreans since last November uh, in private meetings have said they're open to talking to the new U.S. administration. But unfortunately, the Trump administration has gone down the same dead end road that other administrations have gone down, which is. We think we can increase pressure to such a degree that the North Koreans are going to come to the negotiating table with their tail between their legs. And in fact, that's a total misreading of the North Korean character and their behavior. They're not going to do that. You have been part of informal discussions with North Korean officials. When you say they're not going to come to the table with their tail between their legs, what is it that the West could present to them that would help to bring them to the table? Well, at this point, I'm not entirely sure because the situation has gone downhill so much that it's unclear whether there's anything that can bring them to the table. But what I would say is that we really need to sit down with them, first of all, without preconditions. We've been setting preconditions on talking to them. And secondly, in the context of that, explore what they mean by the United States ending its hostile policy towards North Korea. And there are a number of components to that, um, political, security and economic components that need to be explored. And in return for that, of course, we need our concerns addressed about their nuclear and missile programs. Do do you think that we are at the stage where none of that can happen primarily because of the rhetoric coming from President Trump on the one hand and the actual practicalities of testing on the other side? Well, in in an ironic, it's, it's sort of ironic because the fact that they've tested their ICBM, I guess it's three times now, they've recently conducted a nuclear test of a very large yield nuclear weapon, they may be ready to come to the table. And indeed, in the official government statement they just issued after this most recent test, they said the ICBM program was completed. 
Well, you know, you never know when you're reading a, a North Korean government statement exactly what to take seriously and what not to. But the only way we're going to figure it out is to sit down with them and try to explore these issues. But you're absolutely right. The rhetoric from the Trump administration is just leading us to a dead end where we're not going to have any options except war or acquiescing in a nuclear North Korea. Just briefly, when you talk about misreading the North Korean mindset, who is around President Trump who might be able to try and enlighten him on that in that regard? Well, you know, this is going to shock people. But in fact, I think there are probably only two people in the entire U.S. government who have ever even met a North Korean, and they're not senior level people. So none of the people around President Trump know a lot about North Korea, and that's not unusual because in past administrations it was the same. But there was a wealth of knowledge among lower levels officials that has really been dissipated. We will leave it there. Joel Witt, thank you very much for joining us live on NewsHour. Still to come in today's programme. Even though most social media platforms do require a child to be 13 or over, we know that more than a quarter, that's 28% of 10-year-olds in the UK, do have at least one social media profile. And for children aged 11 or 12, that rises to almost half of them. That is new research on the number of young children signing up to new to social networks despite being banned. We will hear more about the risks posed by social media to those young children. Our headlines this hour. The final ruling of the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia has been suspended after one of the appellants declared he had taken poison. President Trump has used his Twitter account to share several anti-Muslim videos posted by a far-right British group. This is Razia Iqbal with NewsHour Live from the BBC in London. Now, we know that exercise is beneficial, but here's a novel approach combining an Olympic sport and often perceived as elitist with young offenders in the West African country of Senegal. Twice a week, young boys and girls from the prison of Ties, one hour away from the capital, Dhaka, benefit from fencing lessons. It's aimed at teenagers in long-term detention, either awaiting trial or already sentenced. The NGO behind the project believes the practice of this particular sport can help with rehabilitation by teaching them how to be responsible and how to respect others. It's also presented as a way to build self-esteem. Since the programme was implemented in 2012, the NGO claim that recidivism rates have dropped Drastically, Alex Duval-Smith has this report. The warehouse is five minutes' drive from Ties Prison. There's a woodworking facility and a classroom for literacy lessons. Unsurprising. Then in the last room, eight young prisoners, among them at least one convicted of murder, are wielding swords. Instructor Jacques Fall directs them. Fencing's an Olympic sport, even though it's played with swords, which are long and thin and blunt and known as foils, 
The object isn't to spear your opponent. Dressed in white with masks to protect their faces, the fencers have to use speed and skill to avoid the blunt tip of the opponent's foil. Donc, eh, when one of them is touched by the opponent's weapon, they must raise their hand, honestly conceding defeat and bowing out. Awa, that's not her real name, is 17. She enjoys the fact that the fencing class, which lasts two hours every week, takes place outside the prison. I enjoy fencing because when I'm here, I forget about life inside. The mood with the others is different when we come here. I can play with my friends, chat a bit and laugh. Jibril, who's 20, feels empowered. It's nice to fence because it gives me dignity as a man. It makes me feel worthy of respect. Fencing is great. Besides, in prison, we don't get to talk to the girls. Here, we talk to them. We are together. These eight juveniles have now forgotten the armed prison guard standing in the corner of this warehouse. Six young men and two young women are inside for crimes varying from murder to housebreaking and assault. All of them on fairly long sentences, more than three months, are brought here once a week for two hours. The charity that organises the fencing says that the advantage of this sport is that men and women fight equally behind their masks with their swords and leather gloves because it's all about technique, not about strength. They have become more calm, more stable, less aggressive. Instructor Abdoulaye Gay from the charity Pour le sourire d'un enfant for a child's smile. They are now more aware of what they did before ending up in prison. Boubacar Diata, the director of Thiers Prison, admits the authorities were initially reluctant to hand weapons to the prisoners. The experiment, though, has been worthwhile. In general, minors cause way more problems than adults in prison. Thiers is the exception. In TS, the minors who fence are less disruptive than the adults. And in terms of reoffending, statistics show that it's much less of a problem with them than it was with the adults. At the end, it's back to the van with the guard for the short drive to jail. The classes have now been running for five years, and staff at TS prison say that if funding could be found, they'd support the idea of fencing being offered to all prisoners in Senegal. That report was from Alex Duval-Smith. Now, it's quite possible that your relationship status might make an impact on the chances of you getting dementia. A large-scale international research paper suggests that people who remain single into old age are 40% more likely to develop some sort of dementia. According to the World Health Organization, some 47 million people have dementia around the world and there are nearly 10 million new cases every year. British-led researchers did an analysis of 15 studies which held data on dementia and marital status involving more than 800,000 people from Europe, North and South America and Asia. Dr Jill Livingston is a psychiatrist from University College London and is a co-author of the study. 
The main findings are that people who are married have a very highly reduced rate of dementia compared to people who are lifelong single and they have a reduced rate compared to widowed people. And how have you come to that conclusion? We looked at all of the studies and found people, the marital status of people at the beginning of the study and they were followed up decades later and seen face to face they weren't all, but in the study, most of the, the best studies, they were seen face to face and they were given a diagnosis of having dementia or not dementia. So we've sort of added all these studies together to get this huge number of over 800,000 people and come to that conclusion. And so what, what is the, what's the evidence then that suggests that if you are single your whole life, that you're much more likely to get either Alzheimer's or, or dementia? I suppose if I take you back to why we did the study in the first place, Andrew Summerlad, who's the main author, he is particularly interested in the relationship of social contact uh, to dementia. And most of the studies that have considered that have thought to have asked people how often they see people. But when we considered it, we thought a much better measure of social contact would be whether you were married as an adult, because in general, people who are married live with somebody, not everybody, but most of them. And people who are single are much less likely to. So that's what made us look at it, is to consider the difference in social contact. And that would be one of the mechanisms by which the clear answer came out that single people are more likely to develop dementia than married. When you took into account other studies, the other studies you admitted yourself were looking at other issues as well. So it wasn't necessarily studies that were just looking at the relationship between being single and dementia. That's right. Most of them weren't looking at that. They had other reasons for studying the population. And that was really sort of serendipity that we were able to pick up such vast numbers and really be much more definitive than anyone had been before. But because they were looking at other things, it enabled us to look at other mechanisms. For example, the single people had in general worse physical health than the married people. And that may be one of the reasons because your physical health affects your brain health. And what about divorced people? Yes, that, that was interesting. Divorced people did not come up as significantly more likely to get um, dementia than married people. Um, and that's interesting. And we don't know why the case is. There's a few things. First of all, this, these populations are quite old. And so relatively fewer people were divorced than they are now. So we had less power, but we still had quite a lot of divorced people in the study. But also... I think that divorced people, a lot of divorced people, maintain social contact and may in fact go on to another relationship. This will, will come as, as pretty bleak news for, for people who are either lifelong singles or even those who are divorced. I mean, what would you say to people? I think that we don't for a minute believe it's a marriage ceremony and the ring that makes the difference. It's the lifestyle. So people should take the message that you should remain socially, intellectually and physically engaged and that really may help you not develop dementia and you might enjoy it as well. That was Dr Jill Livingston, a psychiatrist from University College London. Don't go away, you're listening to the BBC World Service. This is NewsHour. Coming up next, have Britain and Europe come to a financial settlement over Brexit? But first, there have been dramatic scenes at the final rulings at the International Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia when one of the six Bosnian Croat prisoners... 
drank liquid he said was poison. The tribunal has been suspended and it's not clear when the final three sentences will be read. Let's speak to our correspondent in The Hague, Anna Holligan. Anna, first of all, just describe the scene for us that led to the tribunal being uh, suspended. Just absolutely remarkable scenes inside court. Um, He had stood to receive this final judgment. He lifted his hand to his mouth, tipped his head back. It looked as though he was um, doing a mock toast to the court. In fact, he appeared to drink liquid. Uh, He told the court, I have taken poison. His lawyer told the judge he's taken poison. The judge said, curtains down, these proceedings have been suspended. Uh, He asked that the glass or vial that he drank from was retained and somebody shouted, the ambulances have already been called. The ambulances pulled up outside uh, within minutes. Uh, The paramedics ran inside with oxygen tanks on their backs and now we are waiting for confirmation of reports coming both uh, out of Croatia and from the Reuters news agency that uh, Slobodan Praljak has in fact died after drinking poison uh, inside this courtroom which the judge said uh, is now a crime scene. Astonishing drama, uh, Anna, that you're uh, painting a picture for us there. Uh, Just... um, First, I suppose the question that many people will be asking is how on earth did this man get hold of a a small vial of liquid that he then took? How on earth did he get hold of it? How on earth did he get it through security? How on earth did he manage to bring it into this highly secure courtroom. Uh, I'm outside the court now. You know, to go through, we have to empty our pockets. We go through scanners. Uh, They have security at the detention unit where he was being held. And it it really does raise questions about how he was able to smuggle anything at all and whether or not this was indeed poison. This court has been running for more than 20 years now. It has such an enviable record. It's brought uh, more than 100, well, actually 161 suspects to justice. That's, uh, that's uh, a, a full record. It's, it's one that other courts can only aspire to. And this today was the final day of judgments, the final day of hearings in the court's history. It closes now forever. And the fact that somebody, a, a suspect, or in this case a, a convict, his... his um, initial uh, verdict was upheld today, the 20-year sentence remains, uh, was able to smuggle something in. It really will be a black mark on the legacy of this UN tribunal. Anna Holligan joining us live from The Hague and clearly still a developing story. Stay with us here on the BBC World Service. You're listening to News Hour from the BBC. I'm Razia Iqbal. Brexit now, and the British government has uh, appeared to have offered significantly to offered to significantly increase the sum it is prepared to pay the European Union as part of the divorce bill. However, the office of the Prime Minister has described as completely wrong reports that the sum might be as high as 55 billion euros. It said no final figure had been agreed, and negotiations were still going on. 
I'm joined now in the studio by Chris Morris from the BBC's Reality Check team, which is the BBC's fact-checking unit. Uh, So as a fact-checker, Chris, uh, tell us exactly where we're at with it. We know that the the figures have been going backwards and forwards. What do we know? Uh, Yeah, I I think saying it's completely wrong is a slightly hostage to fortune because the whole point about this and, you know, Downing Street and the UK government would say that, wouldn't they? The whole point about this is they don't want to put any figure on it because they know how politically sensitive it is. And both sides are saying the same thing. What they've been trying to do is agree upon a method for calculating the financial settlement, the divorce bill, as it's called in shorthand. And the EU had said, look, we think these are all the commitments you need to honour. It appears as though the UK has pretty much said, yep, OK, we agree with that. I think though there's still plenty of haggling to come. You could say, OK, well, here's the entire financial commitments of the European Union. Yes, we agree that we're on, on the hook for some of that. But the percentage of that, that can also be the object of a lot of negotiation because it's it dependent partly on the size of a national economy compared to the whole of the EU economy. And of course, the value of the pound has fallen. So there's a very strong argument for saying uh, if you're calculating this in euros, then the UK economy has got significantly smaller in the last couple of years and therefore we should pay less money to leave. OK, so before we get to, to, to for you and I to be talking about figures, I just wonder if you can remind us how much the government gives the European Union? It gives about £9 billion. That's what, about $12 billion or so? Every year, that's a net figure. It, there's there's a, a calculation done every year about sort of the, the the gross amount, and then you you take off money which is spent in the UK by the European Union, and you must have talked about this before the UK rebate money, which automatically is sent back as something negotiated way back when by Margaret Thatcher. So that's roughly the amount which is sent to Brussels every year. The way this is politically sensitive is that people who voted and people who supported the Leave campaign in the referendum says we can spend all that money on things like the NHS, the National Health Service. Remember the slogan on the side of a bus. And so one of the political debates we're going to see over the next few weeks and months and probably years is you were lying. No, you were lying because it's unlikely that that amount of money is going to be spent on the NHS because Brexit is going to have other economic effects as well. And of course, there is a pressing deadline to decide on this figure. There is, because at the moment, um, the EU is refusing to talk about the future relationship. It's only talking about a withdrawal arrangement, divorce terms, things like a financial settlement, also the rights of EU citizens after Brexit and the thorny issue of the border between Northern Ireland and the Irish Republic, which will become an external border of the EU. What the British government is saying is, look, Yes, this bill is important, but the much bigger prize, and they're right, is to look at the the health, if you like, of the, of the UK economy, which is worth $3 trillion. And the entire trading relationship it's going to have in the future, not just with the EU, but with the rest of the world. If you get that right, then that's a much bigger prize than anything in this bill, which is being negotiated now. Chris Morris from the BBC's Reality Check team, thank you very much for joining us here in the studio. Let's get the view of a long-standing Eurosceptic on this. Peter Lilly, former Conservative Member of Parliament who campaigned for Brexit. Welcome to NewsHour, Peter Lilly. Uh, would you be happy if the UK paid €50 billion Euros to settle the bills that it owes to the European Union? To leave? No. Uh, it doesn't owe anything to the European Union. That was the view of the... Uh, select committee of the House of Lords, which is full of 
uh, pro-Europeans that we had no legal obligation to pay a penny if we leave. Uh, that was the view of city lawyers Clifford Chance, who likewise campaigned for us to remain in. The reason there's no legal obligation is all these obligations were obligations of the European Union, which is a legal entity, not of the member states. And just as if you've got shares in Shell, you are not personally liable for the debts of Shell, nor are the member countries. Now, the question then is, is it worth paying this to get out? Uh, I think we could get out for um, nothing or much less. But uh, well, you say you can get out. You can. You, you you say that what, the UK can get out for nothing. No, I just I just want to pick you up on the point about you know can we get out for nothing? If the European Union, if if the UK decided that they weren't going to pay anything, there is going to be no way that even negotiations are going to start on any of the issues that really will make a difference to this country. Well, if we that, that's up to them whether they want to negotiate a sensible free trade deal. If we leave without a free trade deal. We get four of the five things we want. We get our own money, we can make our own laws, we can control our borders, and we can negotiate free trade deals with the rest of the world. I'd like the fifth thing as well, but why is it worth 40 or 50 billion pounds to have that? I've seen some calculations done by a city figure, James Arnell, very highly respected, looking at it just as a cold, hard calculation. What is it worth, regardless of the legal or moral obligations, and he says it's worth less than 20 billion down payment for the joy of having a free trade deal. Um, So, you know, uh, let's not exaggerate the value of trade deals. Well, I I just wonder what you make of of the fact that it wasn't that long ago that Theresa May was floating a figure of 20 billion to settle the Brexit divorce bill. And now there is the emergence of this figure, which the government is saying, you know, we shouldn't really be talking about a figure. But it does seem to suggest that if we're moving towards a figure as close to 50 billion, indicates a weakness on the UK position, do you think, ahead of ahead of the summit next month? Well, what would be weak and what I hope they haven't done is accept any legal obligation to pay a penny. Once they accept that, were they to accept that, then we'd be in a terribly weak bargaining position because we'd have effectively admitted a legal obligation to pay whatever it is between 20 and 50 billion euros. Uh, and with no guarantee we get anything in return. That would be the worst of all possible worlds. So the really important thing is they should not admit any legal liability. But the, Do you know that they have or they haven't? I mean, what, what, what's your understanding of the situation regarding My understanding legality? is they haven't accepted any legal obligation, but the EU would like them to. And, of course, if the EU can get them to sign up to a legal obligation, it's going to set a match to the EU because they don't, don't have to give us a trade deal at all. And you think the fairest thing would be for the, for, for, you, for the British government to say, no, we're not going to pay anything at all? Well, we've already committed to paying two years' net contribution, whatever that is, 18, 20 billion uh, pounds or euros, uh, for the period we hope to be able to negotiate an implementation period. Okay. Um, if we get that implementation period leading to a, a free trade uh, agreement in the long term. Okay. Yes, we've got to pay that. But why pay any more? We will leave it there. Peter Lilly, former Conservative Member of Parliament. Thank you.
Italian politicians are debating a proposed new law which would ban the production and distribution of goods that celebrate Benito Mussolini and his fascist government. The proposed new law has already passed through the Italian Chamber of Deputies with two-thirds of the MPs there supporting the measure, but it's yet to pass through the Senate. Centre-left politicians support the law as a means of preventing a rise in modern-day fascism. But the law could would definitely affect one place in which Mussolini is still remembered and celebrated, his hometown of Predapio in northern Italy. Our correspondent James Reynolds has been there. Along this main street here in Predapio, there are a number of souvenir shops and they're all selling Mussolini memorabilia. It's quite striking when you look at it. The shop I'm looking at has six or seven posters, a Mussolini, il duce, a cushion. You can get a Mussolini cushion of Mussolini in a helmet. We're just going into the shop. What's this? It looks like a, a, a lighter. A Mussolini lighter. Yeah. And I can see a Vino Mussolini, Mussolini wine. Is it nice? Thank you. It's nice red wine. It's just a slightly odd feeling to be drinking Mussolini labelled red wine in a shop. Uh, standing in front of a bunch of Mussolini lighters and also a collection of uh, Hitler lighters as well. Two students, Alessandro and Giulia, are shopping for busts of Mussolini. Alessandro already has two, but he wants a third for his bedroom. Giulia says that they are proud to describe themselves as fascists. I think that Mussolini is uh, very important for our history. You support him? Yes, of course. Obviously, you know, there are many people in Italy Mm -hmm. who feel that he left a very bad legacy and that that is a time that Italy should never revisit. Mussolini make uh, something that is wrong, but uh, also make something that is... Ah, He did good things? Yes. You know that there may be a new law which makes this shop illegal. That uh, is not uh, correct. No, you not bevuto too troppo. The shop's owner, Pierluigi Pompignani, wears a Mussolini pendant. He's been selling fascist memorabilia for almost a quarter of a century. We saw that there were a lot of tourists coming to Predapio and I had an idea to start printing postcards with Mussolini and they sold well. Gradually I built up a shop. I don't know what will happen if they make me close down. I'll go to the mayor and ask him for a new job. But the mayor, here showing me round his office, has no immediate vacancies for fascist-inspired souvenir makers. Giorgio Frassinetti opposes fascism. But he also objects to his own centre-left party's proposed law which would stop Mussolini's image from being distributed. Instead, he wants to build a memorial centre in Predapio in order to teach young Italians about their country's violent past. This is a country that must be inoculated against fascism. And it must be done with intelligence, with our culture, with our universities, with our history. But if we hide all our tracks and say it didn't exist, they just won't believe us. La dichiarazione di guerra è già stata consegnata agli ambassadori. This is the voice which ruled Italy for more than two decades. 
The proposed law makes the use of Mussolini's image and words unclear. Would a biography featuring the Duce's face on its cover be banned? And where do you draw the line between honouring and simply remembering? Mussolini's tomb is just in front of me here. And here is Mussolini's tomb. There is a visitor's book. I'm just going to read some of the entries. Long live Il Duce forever. If you can do something for Italy, please do it. They are exterminating us. The hushed tones there of our correspondent James Reynolds in Predapio in northern Italy. And a reminder of our top story this hour. There's been widespread international condemnation of the latest North Korean test of a long-range ballistic missile. Joel Witt, a leading North Korea watcher, told this programme there is little that can be done to curb Pyongyang's missile programme. Unfortunately, the Trump administration has gone down the same dead-end road that other administrations have gone down, which is we think we can increase pressure to such a degree that the North Koreans are going to come to the negotiating table with their tail between their legs. And in fact, that's a total misreading of the North Korean character and their behavior. They're not going to do that. One other headline from the newsroom. The final ruling of the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia has been suspended after one of the appellants declared he had taken poison. This is Razia Iqbal with NewsHour from the BBC World Service. For young children, growing up in an increasingly digital world is all they know. So how much social media is too much social media? A new study conducted by the UK's communications watchdog has concluded that around half of 11 and 12-year-olds across the country own at least one social media account. This despite the fact that most social networks supposedly ban those under the age of 13 from signing up. I've been finding out more from Andy Burroughs, the head of child safety online at the UK-based children's charity, the NSPCC. Even though most social media platforms do require a child to be 13 or over, we know that more than a quarter, that's 28% of 10-year-olds in the UK, do have at least one social media profile. And for children aged 11 or 12, that rises to almost half of them. And you know this because they're actually putting their correct date of birth in? Because lots of children could just change the date of birth. Well, when you join a social network site for the first time, virtually all sites at present do require you really just to uh, tick a box to confirm your age. And one of the things that is most striking from the research today is how low the awareness is that you do actually have to be 13 or over. Amongst parents, six in 10 parents of children who use Facebook and rising to about eight in 10 parents of children who use Instagram or Snapchat weren't actually aware of this age restriction. So there's a real awareness gap here amongst parents. And clearly, if children are just being asked to to tick a box, then it's all too easy for them to say they are actually over 13. Could it just be that they are indifferent to it and they don't mind their children being on these social media platforms? Well, the research today does suggest that some parents would be happy for their children to use sites, regardless of whether or not they are 13 years of age. We are really concerned, though, from our research that children 
are exposed to a range of risks when they go on to social networking sites. And that's why we think the age restriction is really important. Whether that is bullying, which could be peer-on-peer bullying, through to them accessing uh, inappropriate content, or being subject to inappropriate or, or potentially illegal behaviours online. For example, being at risk of grooming or of sexual exploitation. Many would argue that this uh, social media genie can't really be put back in the bottle. What, what do you want social networks to do? Well, what we're calling for is for all social network sites to adopt a consistent set of minimum standards, really creating safe accounts for children and for young people. There would be a series of steps, including, for example, privacy settings for under 18s being set to that highest by default, really simple and easy to use reporting processes, and that if a child reports an issue or a concern, that should be handled by dedicated moderators. It shouldn't just sit at the back of the queue. We also think it's really important that the social network sites invest in moderation with trained, focused child moderators that can respond to the types of concerns and risks that particularly manifest themselves around children. We know that some firms have taken steps to try and make their platform safer. YouTube, for example, has set up its own kids site, although there's been a wave of concerns over recent days about how effective that is in managing the risks for children. Google in the United States has also introduced its family link platform which are effectively safer accounts for under 13s that allow a degree of parental supervision but the wider issue here is that we've seen a series of voluntary steps in which social networks take initiatives but don't necessarily have to disclose how effective they may be and that's why it really is time for all social media firms to have to follow a consistent set of protections so that children and parents can have reassurance that these platforms are actually safe for them. That was Andy Burroughs, Head of Child Safety Online at the UK-based children's charity, the NSPCC. Now, it has become the norm for journalists or indeed anyone who's interested for more than a year now to check President Trump's Twitter feed around the time he wakes up. Today, among the tweets he has uploaded include retweeting three inflammatory anti-Muslim videos which were posted by a far-right British group. The videos were reposted without comment by Mr Trump. Let's talk to our political correspondent Rob Watson. Rob, uh, just tell us uh, what was in each of these videos, three of them. Yes, briefly. So they're more than six months old and in fact two of them date back as early as 2013. The first one purports to show it's under the title Muslim Migrant Beats Up Dutch Boy on Crutches. Uh, The police in in Holland had arrested two boys uh, and uh, one was charged, although uh, I think his religion was never mentioned in the reporting of it. The other video shows a, a, a teenage boy pushed off roof and beaten to death and this was thought to have happened in Egypt 2013. Exactly what the circumstances are is mysterious Uh, and then the other video uh, has the caption, after invading and occupying a Christian region in Syria a Muslim cleric declares the supremacy of Islam and Sharia law before smashing a statue of the Virgin Mary and there's a total lack of contextual information about this video so it makes it very difficult to verify the claim and that's thought to date from uh, October 2013. And the tweets uh, have they were retweeted from a, a woman called Jada Franson from a group called... Called what? Britain First, and it was founded in 2011. It's an offshoot of, a, of an earlier British far-right group called the British National Party, and it is an un- unashamedly anti-Islam party, 
unashamedly far-right. It describes itself ultra-nationalist, anti-immigrant and anti-multiculturalism. Uh, anti and it's fairly small in the sense that it only tends to have a couple of hundred uh, followers when it has it organises the odd street protest. But and on I, the Twitter feed, well, 56,000. Well, and I was about to say that it, that it also has nearly two million likes on, on Facebook. Well, that's quite interesting. And now we know that the president uh, has 45 million plus followers. Give us a sense of the political and social reaction to well, this. I, look, I think it's fair to say it's it's outrage. I mean, people, I, I mean, it's British politicians are really scratching their heads about this one. And I think even people in Britain who are sympathetic towards Donald Trump are, are, are just thinking, why on earth would anyone do this? I mean, let me give you just a quick flavour of the kind of reaction there's been. Brendan Cox, if everybody remembers, Remembers him. He's the widow of the MP Joe Cox who was murdered. And he, he has said his reaction was Trump has legitimised, I'm quoting, of course, the far right in his own country. Now he's trying to do it in ours. Uh, we've got David Lammy, who's a, 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 an MP for North London, a Labour MP, saying the President of the United States is promoting a fascist, racist, extremist hate group whose leaders have been arrested and convicted. And more generally, uh, Britain's opposition Labour Party is, is basically urging the government to just sort of come straight out and condemn President Trump. And do you think that that might happen? Well, so far, the government has said, a government minister has said that he hadn't seen exactly what had, had, had taken part, but taken place, but that he was thinking that, um, you know, certainly the president needed to be mindful of what he was doing. Rob Watson, our political correspondent, joining us live here in the NewsHour studio, talking about those uh, retweets by the president. Bringing us to the end of this edition of the programme. Thanks very much for your company this past hour. From me, Razia Iqbal, and the entire NewsHour team. Till the next time. Bye-bye. NewsHour has been a download from the BBC. To discover more and our terms of use, visit bbc.com slash podcasts.